Hello, listeners. I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In addition to our regular programming, we are pleased to bring you the following discussion, presented as a part of a series by the Org Gallery. This conversation was recorded on Zoom on December 5th, 2020, and is the second of two artist talks in conjunction with the Gas Imaginary exhibition, curated by director-curator Denise Reiner. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this virtual online talk in connection with the Gas Imaginary, currently showing at Or Gallery from October 2nd to December 19th. This is the second of two conversations that we've had around the, the works and the project and the ideas of Gas Imaginary, an ongoing or long-term project. I think this is the end of it by Rachel O'Reilly. It's been really exciting to, to have conversations around this, both in the gallery, but also bringing in people online. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that I am speaking from the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations, which is also where our gallery is located. And I am joined here by Tanya Willard, who joins us from her studio on unceded Sequimet territory. She's an artist, curator, writer, assistant professor in the visual art department of UBC Okanagan. Tanya works within the shifting ideas around contemporary and traditional, often working with bodies of knowledge and skills that are conceptually linked to her interest in intersections between Aboriginal and other cultures. She has completed many public art projects and is featured in the touring exhibition, Soundings, which is currently on view at UBC's Balkan Gallery, although I think it closes tomorrow. So by the time this is viewable, it will have moved on. Willard's ongoing collaborative project, Bush Gallery, is a conceptual land-based gallery grounded in Indigenous knowledges and relational art practices. And hopefully we'll talk about that today. Her current research constructs a land rights aesthetic through intuitive archival acts. Rachel O'Reilly joins us from Minjin on the territory of the Jagera and Turbul nations, which is also known by its colonial name of Brisbane, Australia. She is an artist, writer, and poet, curator, and currently a PhD researcher at Goldsmith Center for Research Architecture. Her work explores relationships between art and situated cultural practices, media philosophy, and political economy, and is informed by materialist feminism and anti-colonial movements in the everyday. In the last decade, she has focused increasingly on infrastructures of art and energy, questions of law and governance, and urgencies of planetary survivance. And also joining us is Kanahus Manuel, who joins us from Blue River on unceded Sequimet territory. She is a mother, water and land defender, and member of the Tsekwamek Women's Warriors Society. Manuel's family has been actively involved in the struggle for rights and sovereignty for generations. And her late father is Arthur Manuel, a former Tsekwamek chief and residential school survivor who has championed indigenous rights and title in Canada and abroad. So welcome. Again, because of our, uh, we're all speaking from different regions and, and parts, so not everyone in this conversation has had the chance to see the Gas Imaginary Project. But why I wanted to bring this group together was this 
common thread that runs through the gas imaginary with relationships to space and land. In fact, the the latest part of the, the project opens with Irene Watson talking about you know, this this inseparability from land and land is part of being, you know, this, quote, connections to country is what she says. And so cutting such a connection is the extinguishment of oneself. And I feel that this runs through kind of both of your activism, your works, a lot of what you've been writing and talking about in public spaces. And so I wanted to to kind of start from that note and introduce or invite you to introduce your projects and your work. And so perhaps we'll, we'll start with Rachel, since I've started talking about infractions already, and just so that we can get a background on some of the connections there. Sure. Thank you so much for bringing us together. It's really amazing to be in conversation with you from the locations that you're speaking from. And to start with, I guess, I'm in Mianjin, which is Yagar and Turugal country, but I grew up actually on Gorengaran country, which is about six hours north of here. And it's kind of the most industry-friendly town on the east coast of Australia. So my, I'm a you know fourth-generation kind of Irish settler, I guess. And a lot of my family worked in the union movement on the construction sites of a lot of the, the early industry, not just in that town, but actually across the east coast and the north of Australia. So I kind of grew up with that kind of history of you know, corporate literacy, I guess, on the activities of a lot of corporations that were producing industrial infrastructure where I grew up. So this film, I actually, my background was literature and film, and I was curating non-Western contemporary art practices in a project called the Asia-Pacific Triennial when the fracking industry came to Australia. And it involved a very large dredging project that kind of remixed all the toxins in the harbour where I grew up and a lot of fish died, a lot of turtles died, a lot of dugongs died, fishermen got sick and my father had a business selling fishing tack on the harbour so he was getting a lot of the really like local stories on how much of the harbour was damaged and of course a lot of that was covered up at the time. But as a person who, you know, trained in the cultural sector alongside First Nations curators and intellectuals, you know, that kind of like cut between promoting First Nations practices and saying nothing about the destruction of the land from the new gas industry was a big reshift in how I was thinking about what it means to be a cultural worker. And so I kind of started paying attention to the gas industry when there was very little information about it here and it was very well, you know, the propaganda was was quite successful in the early years. And so there, there wasn't a lot of information on what was happening. And so I actually only started making art in reaction to the gas fracking industry to put stories and diagrams and explanations in public around how it was affecting people's relationships to land. But particularly what was super unique about how it came to Australia, it came to some of the whitest farming lands in Queensland and Queensland has some of the weakest First Nations rights. So the very early images of protests against the industry was a, of white farming families, settler farming families, complaining about being invaded by corporations as if corporations had only just landed in Australia, you know, in the last decade or something. And I saw it as a particular moment to kind of do colonial education around the deep history, you know, of colonisation in those places where people were quite upset about the industry. And I just kept following it. So the film that platforms the most First Nations voices out of the project, which is the last work that I made from this project, I made that film 
I just happened to get a film commission at the same time that a moratorium was lifted on the industry in the Northern Territory, which historically has had the strongest First Nations land rights in the country, but it's also the centre of an unending mining boom. So, you know, the whole time legal recognition has happened, people have got access to a certain level of land protection at the same time as having to use those legal weapons to defend from ever-increasing encroachment from mining companies. Yeah, that's really where I'm coming from. The only other thing I wanted to say is there's a really important film called Water is Life that was made by sovereign um, First Nations organisers before I made this film. So when I made the film that I was making, I was thinking about what else I could contribute to the story, which was, I think there's a lot a lot of legal education for settlers around the limits of Western law for resisting the kinds of really dangerous, you know, planet killing practices that are happening at the moment. And there's also a kind of emphasis on the corporate geography. So really emphasizing that this industry comes from the US in terms of empire and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the weapons that it has move around the globe. It's not just a national problem of bad politicians in one place. So yeah, that's just my introduction, I guess. Yeah. And I just wanted to also bring in part of the conversation from our last Rachel that we had with Denise Frada Silva on infractions and your work. And Denise had brought up this comparison. She's familiar with, well, she's lived in Australia for a while, but she's also familiar with Brazil. And she had kind of brought up this comparison of distancing and thinking of the spaces of the Northern Territory, which is the region that a lot of your work is centered on. That's where all of these mineral licenses are, are kind of dominating or dematerializing the land, as, as you talk about, and thinking about so the Northern Territory space, Amazonia in Brazil, BC in Canada, and this sort of distancing for people that are maybe limited or living in cities and kind of their acknowledgement of how destruction of these places, whether through pipelines, fracking, deforestation in Amazonia, they disentangle themselves from it, or they think they can separate themselves from it. And it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. And and sort of the work that you've been doing, Rachel, with, with infractions and trying to sort of bring this to the forefront. And so I was, I was kind of interested in touching on that to bring in the work that Tanya and, and sort of her discussions around Bush Gallery and and this idea of, you know, decentering the gallery and decentering the city and and uh, forefronting the sort of art ecology, cultural ecologies, communities on on her land. So I just wanted to address that by way of introducing Tanya to this discussion to start. Yeah. Great. White Kuhwaitup, or Squest Tanya Willard, Slaka Loika, Nuskain Ash, Nusapatmok Utluch. So, yeah, thank you for welcoming me to the discussion. I am an artist and curator and have a new gig also doing some teaching, which I'm just kind of experiencing for the last year and a half. But, yeah, I, I was working as an artist and curator interested in Indigenous art, contemporary Indigenous art practices working with Indigenous artists across uh, Canada. And I kind of found that I was feeling limited about who was coming to the gallery. You know, I felt like I had to be a sales pitch for trying to get other Indigenous peoples to come to the gallery. And I realized I was never going to get the kind of response because that space has such a uh, kind of white legacy and there's a kind of issues of accessibility for that space. And also I had young kids and I started to really re-examine you know, I want to be committed to artists and art practices, but where is it taking me? You know, it's great that I have exhibitions in other major city centers in Canada, but 
it's still removing me. It's still displacing me from my community in, in these ways that kind of modern economics and the capitalist system remove us from our homes, whether it's in kind of, you know, a negative way or also in the way of people like searching for labor, you know, education. Those all exist primarily outside of our communities because the reservation system was meant to sort of keep us in a certain place, right? So I started to think about all this while I was working as an artist and curator and becoming less and less interested in the model that was in front of me in terms of showing at galleries in cities. And when I had young kids, I also wanted them to grow up with more culture and language than I had. So I grew up for the first few years of my life in the same community as Kanahoos, but my parents split up and I grew up in Armstrong, which is kind of a small, mostly white settler town, but within my traditional territory bordering on the nation adjacent to us, the Seal territories. So I really wanted a chance for my children to grow up with more culture and language than I was able to. So part of this all led me back home and also teachings from other Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam folks who I'd been in touch with in Vancouver. So this work led me home. And when I really started to examine that idea of what is the gallery, what do I want to contribute? What kind of space do I make? It wasn't only about getting Indigenous artists and curators into the White Cube Gallery. It was also about totally decentering that idea and saying, what is a gallery to me? What is, you know, what is the beauty of the land, but a gallery? What is where we get the harvest, the materials for baskets and other kinds of Sokwatmuk aesthetics and practices is from the land. And so in thinking through this, I wanted to have this project that we started to call Bush Gallery, where we wanted to enact a model of coming together, still making a space for art and all kinds of like weird and experimental art practices, but doing that in a place that was centered in in an Indigenous territory, which happened to be me because I had access to some land that I was moving back to. And so it was really about kind of really looking at what model I was participating in and really deciding to move away from that and try to work in ways that I felt grounded still in community, grounded in culture, grounded in language, and that provided a space for multi-generational people to, you know, enact with the gallery, kids, elders, people who felt comfortable on the land, but not comfortable in the gallery. And so, yeah, it's the start, the way I started to work. And I think about that project as collaborative, both with other artists from outside of my territory, uh, also with community, and then also operating in ways still with galleries. So I haven't completely rejected the gallery model, but I've said, look at these other great ways of working. And also very inspired growing up in our community from the work of Manuel Family and others who really, you know, made important space for discussion of land rights. And that framed how I grew up, you know, kind of who remember learning probably also the We Don't Need Your Constitution song when we were young. And we grew up with this sense that you know, Canada was something to question and that it didn't encompass the way in which our rights and our ways were centered. And so we've had to, we've had to fight for that. And Bush Gallery is the project where I try to use my art practice to position understandings of land, territory, and the many impacts that settler and capitalist practices have. So it's an overview of the Bush Gallery project. And I consider the land as a kind of sentient being that we collaborate with as well as other artists. Yeah, thank you, Tanya. Before we move to Kanahus, I just wanted to, you know, Rachel, you've been not only screening infractions simultaneous to the installation of Gas Imaginary or Gallery, but sorry, you've been screening infractions at the IMA in Brisbane, but you have also 
been touring infractions to various communities. And I was wondering if that's from a place of similar concern that Tanya was talking about to, to make sure that it's not about expecting your audience to find the people that need to see the film to like find their way to the city and to the gallery and see it. But actually, you know, the role of this film is being sort of engaging conversations with people that like should have the right to, to be where they are and that you come to them because you're like, I just wanted to hear more about the, the touring you've been doing with infractions and that aspect. Yeah, just briefly, I can talk about that for a long time, but yeah, it's just really super basic protocol to continue to be in conversation about the, you know, the return of value to communities. The film, you know, it cuts across different locations. So in that sense, it's not a completely local production. It's more about moving, you know, filming people on their country, talking to them on the country about this hovering investment imagination, but, you know, moving the story to places where they would like the story to go to. So it is screening in the capital cities and it's gone back to the desert and to Darwin, to those, like, I guess, city centres in the Northern Territory. We actually decided not to do community screenings in the most remote towns where it was shot just because people are so busy organising right now would actually be a distraction from their work. So we're looking at different distribution models to either have a screening later or in the meantime, it's going to be streamed and it's going to be on USB sticks and things like that. So those kind of basic protocols, you know, they've been instituted for a really long time, but I think new generations of filmmakers need to constantly be reminded that they you know, their long-term kind of collaboration protocols. And so, yeah, it's, it's important to talk about those things, I think. Kind of who's, so your, most of your work is, you know, active and organizing, speaking of organizing around activism and land protecting and your, I'm wondering how, what I was also interested in is how like the tiny house movement sort of manifests this presence and relationship to land with these, with these objects and, and sort of the, an image of like a protest that's going to continue for as long as it needs to, you know, shelter, like actually building shelters and these images that I've been seeing. And so I'm I'm just curious if you're interested in getting those of us in cities to keep our attention or gain our attention out to Wet'suwet'en or wherever actions are happening and and what those strategies are, and or if that's important, if it's really about kind of working for the communities that are there and yeah. I'd like to quiet up Kanahu Speski request. Hello, everybody. My name is Kanahu Speski Manuel. My name means Red Woman and Tanaka. I'm both from the Sukhwamuk and the Tanaka Nation. And like Tanya said, we actually grew up next door and we actually played in the bush and that was our playground. And that was where we created. We even had air bands and played music and played air guitars and found crystals and different things in the bush. So we have good memories that we started out with there in our community and we've became lifelong friends because of that. So thank you, Tanya, for bringing me on here with all of this amazing creativity. I would just like to say that Tiny House Warriors is actually a mission and it's a mission to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And we decided that we're going to build 10 tiny houses on wheels um, that we're going to deploy in the path of the pipeline in our territory. And so we've built this idea, I guess, from the creators and the artists in our family, because we have to be creative in the way that we resist. We've been resisting for a long time and we've seen how the police and the government will target us. And we've done jail time in the past, um, me and my sisters and our family are part of the movement. And so that's something we didn't want to see fighting this pipeline, although we end up 
facing some jail time right now, but not because of choice. We've sparked in this movement here with the Tiny House Lawyers Against the Trans Mountain Pipeline to actually assert our rights and our title to our lands and to live on our lands. And my late father, Arthur Manuel, he would always say that you have to be on the ground. You have to take your resistance on the ground. Um, we can't just fight it in the courts and we can't just go international to the UN or any of these international human indigenous rights bodies. We actually have to be on the ground and assert our rights and our title on the ground. And so what it looks like to us is building these tiny houses on wheels and just being really creative in it because we have four walls now and we have been painting them with murals that tell the story of our Sokwatmuk laws about our laws of consensus, our laws of decision-making, how we respect our, our land, the responsibilities that we have to the land and the water. And so it's really important that we really showcase the reason why we are here on our land, our love for the land, that our food sovereignty, our the food security that we get from our territory, and this is why we're here on our territory to defend it. We have 180,000 square kilometers of unceded, unsurrendered territory here. And it's a massive area that this pipeline wants to cross through. If we were to set up a tiny house every kilometer, we would be setting 518 tiny houses up. That's how much kilometers of this pipeline travels through our, our territory. And it's threatening over a thousand wetlands, rivers, creeks and rivers, all the way from the Edmonton terminal, all the way to the Western Marine Terminal in and around Vancouver. So it's a big area that's being threatened. And one of the big things of why we are doing this is to assert our title and rights to the land by exclusively using and occupying our territories to stop and block this construction of the pipeline. And my late father, Arthur Manuel, you know, always told us that it was really important for the grassroots people to be on the ground, that he can be doing the work, the international work at the UN or these international human rights, indigenous rights bodies, and people could be fighting it domestically in the courts. But we have to have people on the ground that are asserting our rights and our title. The government has told us time and time again, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so we're going to continue to uh, utilize our lands and use our lands and practice our culture and our way of life on our land and these tiny house warriors and having our homes out on our territory allow us to do this. And Kanahus, I, I just wanted to also ask or invite you to respond to some events that have recently happened. So the government, the Canadian government is planning on tabling Bill C-15, which would compel the government to honor the rights of Indigenous people as set out in the 2007 Declaration of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP. At the time when it was tabled by the UN, I think Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand didn't, didn't immediately sign on, but only if it was non-binding. And one of the one of the parts of that agreement was this idea of like a free prior and informed consent to activities happening on Indigenous lands. And, and so I just wanted to invite you to respond to that. And, and if you think that Bill C-15 will, will help to compel or empower land defenders to prevent further expansions of pipelines and other, other destructive activity on the land. Yeah, well, in, in my opinion, I really believe that Canada never has the best intentions for Indigenous peoples. Like it was proven when the world was 
eager to sign on to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but Canada refused to and refused to for many years. But what my knowledge is about this declaration, that it is a good thing that Indigenous peoples from around the world really wordsmithed and wordcrafted all those articles in there that really define our rights as Indigenous people. You know, like what you said, the free prior informed consent that industry must get before they go into our territories. You know, they have to, that we as Indigenous people have the right to choose our own leadership and our own decision-making processes and our own governance. You know, all of these things that are stated in these articles are good things. These are our rights as Indigenous peoples. But as an international declaration, it's not law. And, you know, it's not binding for these colonial states to, and it's not enforceable. But for us as Indigenous people, we have a template that we can stand on and say, these are our rights. And we're demanding these colonial countries respect and implement it. But um, I believe that the way, and Canada has admitted if they implement this, it will only be within the limits of the constitution, you know? And so it's domesticating international laws and our international rights that are in, our inherent rights, Indigenous human rights to our lands. And they want to say in the Canadian Constitution, Section 35, they recognize existing Aboriginal treaty rights. And what does that mean is existing? And for us to define what that existing means, like we've had, you know, our roots go so deep, they go to creation. You know, our roots are ancient. You're going to find that we were here for hundreds of thousands of years. Our title, as my grandfather, George Manuel would say, our title and our rights, our culture, our language, it all flows from the land. You can't sever it. It's a constant flowing to us. And that's what we inherit as we inherit this um, responsibility to our land. So I think that Canada is really putting this out there as a smokescreen to make it look as if they are respecting our human rights and our Indigenous rights here in Canada to continue to make way for more extractive resources like the Alberta tar sands and these pipelines that are threatening not just Sakwatmukuluk, but all the way down to like to Minnesota and Line 3 and these areas down into the states that are, you know, coming from the Alberta tar sands. You know, there are our relatives in Mexico are fighting TC Energy. So, you know, these pipeline projects are, you know, going full force. And Canada, I believe, is using this facade of this undrip like the to cover up the fact that they're one of the most evil, dirtiest countries right now, pushing oil and gas through Indian country. What was that song again? We don't need the constitution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Rachel, Undrip comes up in, in Fractions and in your interview with Irene Watson. And I was wondering if you wanted to add some observations just from your your region. And Yeah, I mean, just from more from speaking from the kind of settler side of, you know, understanding the history and the way that these kind of legal, you know, these kind of court cases and court rulings are used to change the history of the country all the time, you know, like to simplify it and to, you know, there's there's a lot of work, I think, for settlers to do if they want to think, you know, with the refusal of these kind of practices and the, the question of climate justice to really think through their understanding of the history of these legal victories, because it's through these kind of simplified stories of legal victory, I think, that people think that you know, reform happens in a straight line and things are getting better and better and better when actually, you know, the actual 
way in which spaces are colonised is actually getting more and more complicated and, you know, there's many more weapons that are used. So there's a big part of my film that's just literally about people telling stories about how consent for mining was manufactured on their country through tricky, you know, deceitful storytelling and, you know, excluding people from meetings and, you know, just not giving out information, you know, with groups of people who, you know, absolutely deserve economic well-being. And so, you know, the certain signatures kind of happen in the absence of a kind of freedom to choose um, the right to, you know, manage country. And then, you know, a lot of those, I think a big part of the story is that a lot of those agreements are confidential. So they're not even archived by the state, really. So if you wanted to even compare people's experience of those of those meetings, you can't even do that either. So people are being played off each other all the time. And I think settlers need to understand how to support sovereignty is how to kind of like listen to the grassroots people who are making the strongest refusals on the ground. And I think that's, you know, that's why the film is structured how it is. But I think there's a lot to go in terms of, you know, this kind of like wishful thinking about, you know, this this final court case that will resolve, you know, happy reconciliation story of a nation. And if that's if we know that that's not going to happen, then what's the work that we need to do other than that? Yeah. And I mean, Rachel, please let me know if you prefer not to you know, speak on behalf of your collaborators, but Hugh Kenny, who is in the film and an activist and legal scholar, legal student in Ontario, if I'm pronouncing that right. She unfortunately couldn't join us today because she's been doing a lot of work and wasn't able to. But she had spoken about this interventions that happened in 2007. And I'm noticing that that happened the same year as Undrip. And if there's a relationship and how that kind of led to this difficulty in asserting land and water rights. And because it was it was quite like a seemed to be an, definitely an impactful event. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, something quite similar happened in Canada around the same time, but, you know, the the timing of that is also the global financial crisis. And so, you know, the financial crisis was happening and there was a manufactured story of child abuse that was completely fictional, that was made up to send the military into the Northern Territory, take over community governance. And Nadaria, where Q Q lives, where her country is, it's Western Aranda country, they were one of the first towns for the intervention to be trialled as a kind of takeover of governance at that time. And you can't connect it immediately to the mining situation, but there is an ongoing attempt to make it difficult for people to stay on their country. And the intervention is a big part of that story. And people are so busy fighting pipelines at the moment that, you know, the intervention falls away into the background just because it's one of you know, a long history of violent acts, I guess, but it's still very much a part of the aftermath of that legal change is very much a part of how difficult it is to organise and have economic independence. There was a a key card that was invented at that time to manage people's income, things like that. So all of those things make it really harder to organise on country. Tanya, I'm wondering, actually, I think Rachel had mentioned sort of archive and I was wondering if you think of Bush Gallery as a sort of archive of of community and land and presence or, yeah, kind of what your approach to to it is in terms of time and, and legacy and things like that. I mean, I structure it quite differently than how I think about my other work within contemporary art. I really try to let go of a lot of the ways in which I'm accustomed to working in those other spheres and try to let it be sort of 
guided a bit more by by what sort of is happening on the land or what's kind of calling me to attention or what I really kind of think about happenstance and synchronicity as a principle of organizing there. And so in some ways, that project rejects the archive in the sense that it is about the moment and how we're living and presencing on the land in the day-to-day. Sometimes it's a project, sometimes it's not. I'd also like an offshoot of that is that I've made my home there and raised my family there. And so there's a really kind of complicated entwining of my life and all these important like Sofama principles and aesthetics and ideas within that. And they live, you know? And so if we think of the archive of static, then I reject the archive, you know, it's not an end. It's not to be preserved without connecting to the vitality of our communities and our people and our land. Right. But they do provide a kind of a witnessing. So they, the projects, the times that we are able to gather that we do at Bush Gallery are a kind of a witnessing, the land is witnessing us and we are witnessing the land. And that makes its own kind of record. I mean, trees, you know, you can read tree rings in terms of thinking about how the climate was and all these different data that is stored in a tree ring. And that data is as much about us in terms of how we influence the climate, right? So there's this reciprocal activation happening that's never static. And so it's a witnessing, but it's not quite an archive. It's allowed to disappear and reappear and not be, you know, and sometimes to take action. So yeah, it has different kinds of forms. And then it's also, you know, it's also, I have other work and other projects. So it it necessarily kind of manifests when it wants to. My job is to just kind of pay attention to that and to try and, uh, and try and listen. I think that's a strong part of the project is to listen to the moments when things are right. And to balance that also with my own capacity, but, (laughs) but I think, yeah, it's, uh, you know, The archive is important in terms of, you know, I think about my archive in some ways is thinking about our Cookby, our chiefs before, and the ways in which they encoded land rights in in the way that we have a daily embodied relationship to our land, right? So when you are able to harvest your foods, like Kanahus mentions, when you're able to do your songs or practice your dance on the land, you know, those are those are our laws, those are our governance, those are our art, and they and they come to us from a lived memory and they are importantly about us on our land, just like Kanahus is saying, it's about being there. And like you're saying, Rachel, in terms of like being in country, so the ability to be on your land, it encodes all of that within us, I think, and allows us to be active agents and connections to our lands and to our families and this great, you know, this great kind of reciprocal rippling kind of circling. Yeah. <laughs> I think I went off from archive, but <laughs> that's where that's where it led me. <laughs> I just, I picked up the issue that Tanya edited or guest edited on sites and Bush and, and sort of these embodied community-based engagement with art or, or creation of art spaces as opposed to gallery spaces. And there's the Bush Manifesto that's in one of the opening pages. And it's, you know, just like pages and pages of like, you know, phrases. And I'll just read a few of them here. 
Bush Gallery is alive and breathing. Bush Gallery is on indigenous lands. Bush Gallery is animate and inanimate at the same time. Bush Gallery is radically inclusive. All bodies and lands and kids and dogs and bears are welcome. Bush Gallery requires new words. And it you know, just goes on. And I, I kind of just wanted to bring that up to maybe hear Kanakus and Rachel and Tanya expand on these spaces or you know, an idea of an art space that gets away from the colonial idea of presentation and, and knowledge production. And it's also something that we touched on too, that you, you did, Rachel, in our last conversation with Denise that I think was edited out. So I just wanted to bring that in, like thinking of, again, we've all talked about art up to this point, but of art spaces in this way. And yeah. Do you want to start Canada's? Yeah, I look at everything in my life I do as art because, you know, even from my tattoo work to my birth work and to even raising these children, I have four children that I'm raising and I'm raising them not registered with the government so that they don't have birth certificates and stuff so it's like like I said like we're painting this new or showing people what can be accomplished pulling yourself out of the system and I believe that's very artistic and creative because you know I feel like artists they're showing us they're showing us and they're allowing us to see through their lens and they're creating something for us to embody and connect to. And, you know, creating this space here at Tiny House Warriors and being able to have all these young people, my children and Indigenous youth, you know, not just from the Vancouver urban setting or our own communities, and but also from the other side of the mountains, from Edmonton. And I always look at every single one of these young people as creators of beauty because they are resistors and they come with this fierceness in them that they want to stand up and they want to fight back against the system. But I always tell them, paint the solutions, create, we create the solutions of what we want to see. And like my father said, okay, they give you the land back today. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to manage it? How are you going to look after it? How are we going to fulfill our responsibilities and our principles and our to our land without it being taken over again or without somebody coming in to usurp or commandeer with a colonial mentality? And so that's sort of like what I believe is my place in creating the space to say like, hey, here's a space for us to create what the world would look like. You know, what are we saying when we say land back? What are we saying when we say self-determination? And, you know, that's how I feel. I contribute to this bigger space of artists and, you know, creators in our nation. Thank you. Yeah, I was really lucky to grow up in, I mean, Mianjin is where I went to university here and it has a really strong history of First Nations, like pan-Indigenous activism in the city in relationship to, you know, like a really intense history of dispossession as well. And one of my studio, I'm in a studio at the moment that's full of Aboriginal artists and um, there's a man there who's quite important called Gordon Hookie and he has an amazing poster work that he makes that's like a kangaroo holding a machine gun and it says they want our spirituality but not our political reality. And I'm really, you know, like that, I'm really conscious of, you know, this question of like, you know, how much Aboriginal art do we deserve in our own cultural work, you know, based on how we practice 
And, you know, it's been interesting for me to live in Europe for the last 10 years and, and be coming back all the time to do this kind of fracking research and, and work because I think it's only from zooming out and then coming back in that you kind of see the difference between those really sovereign practices and how they're consumed and interpreted, you know, from great distances and also how that changes over generations. So, you know, like I was lucky to study and train with, you know, a really solid generation of First Nations curators and it was just ordinary, you know, at that time to already be talking about the difference between the kind of Western European idea of the avant-garde and the concept of the First Nations avant-garde is literally about surviving and thriving, you know, in country and with languages that were illegal 20 years ago, you know. So I think that literacy and the law is kind of how I was thinking about contributing to that from a kind of settler position. But it has been really interesting thinking about, you know, the kind of corporate funded history of reconciliation in relationship to these kind of new, I think there's a new interest in Indigenous art right now that is not necessarily, uh, and I'm talking about the art market, I'm talking about international art spaces, you know, it's not necessarily literate in all the First Nations scholars and curators and artists who've worked so hard to produce those discourses, you know, and I think there's the kind of you know, it's not an accident. I think it's not an accident that during moments of increased extractivism, you know, we have to be really careful about how we talk about First Nations practices in art spaces, you know, at that time. Yeah, and I'll maybe add briefly, like, you know, I have this, you know, art is kind of what I do. And so it manifests in these ways, like Bush Gallery as a project. But, you know, there is a bit of a line in terms of like, art can only do so much, you know, a project like Tiny House Warriors is an artful project that has a real clear mission, right? So, you know, careful to overshadow the importance of that kind of direct organizing. And it's, you know, the really critical work responding to the violent settler state. And so, you know, I think we, you know, as an artist, I comment and engage with that, with that activism, and I might, you know, work with other activists in different realms. But I just want to point to, though, that there is a critical difference, I think, at some point, which is about the work of direct action organizing that is, you know, is really critical and important and that I think... In some ways in Bush Gallery, I find subtle ways to support, you know, so ways in which that we can redirect rework or, you know, so interested in the kind of economy of art spaces. And I realized participating in it that it never really ends up back in my community. And how can I kind of feel a little stone in the creek that, you know, that makes things kind of curve around and redistribute. So I just I just wanted to kind of point to, in some ways, what I see is kind of the limits of art, though it is limitless, you know, and I really believe in, in the practice. It's also this, that when we are faced with a state that is on one hand buying a pipeline and forcing it through our territories and divide, like Rachel, you talked about really dividing communities with the way that some communities sign deals, some, you know, we're all in this space of needing economy and they use it to divide us. Sorry if I'm cutting out. <laughs> It's probably fine. At some point, it said internet is unstable, and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, I heard most of it, so I think it's fine. I mean, this has been really doing these conversations, because last time, Rachel, you were somewhere with that had also bad connection. And kind of like, you know, I, I take for granted, again, I'm stuck here in the city, but but speaking to people that are out and not kind of working with all the infrastructure that I have here, and it, it just, again, reminds me how cut off I am from what's 
going on and and just sort of makes makes me aware of like the different situations and conditions and and thanks again so much because also the difficulties in joining so thank you i haven't heard from the guys at collective broadcast so i guess we can go on and you seem to be back tanya so I just wanted to point, we have, we're like almost at the hour mark, but if anyone had questions for each other, maybe if you have updates kind of on what's going on now, I know that there's been a lot happening with tiny house warriors and court cases and, and all sorts of stuff. If, if you, if you want to, it's up to you what you want to talk about, but certainly want to leave room for that if you'd like to address it. We've been you know here on in Blue River and on the front line, we have five tiny houses on wheels here. And up and down this whole length of this pipeline corridor, there's different sections that are under construction right now. A couple of them are actual man camps. The site we're at right now is actually stopping a thousand man man camp. And we've been here um, since July, 2018. So it's actually our third winter that's here right now. There's snow out and we've just been busy getting firewood for enough you know, keep these houses warm and the people here on the front lines warm. But we, as they're ramping up their construction, um, we've been doing trainings and different things here in our small groups here to, you know, deploy our direct actions and out there against some of this construction. I mean, every delay costs them money. And we've been working on, you know, bringing some big names like Naomi Klein to help us with you know, just bringing some more attention and getting a webinar that's going to be next Wednesday on December 9th, a global webinar with other land defenders across the country that we've been working with. And we call the National Week of Action the other week with Indigenous resistance from the Wet'suwet'en, the Gidimden checkpoint, all the way out to the most moratorium blockades and also the Six Nations at the 1492 land back that's fighting the real estate. And then the Mi'kmaq fishers. So we had a a big action where people shut down roads and highways and railways and cities all across Canada to show that that there's Indigenous solidarity and that if you you know hurt one of us, you're hurting all of us. And that was our message that we are one straight across this country. This was all happening during a time when we were forced to go through trial. And we had two trials, back-to-back trials for four of our tiny house warriors. Um, but one of the lawyers quit at the last minute and left us without a lawyer and, you know, forcing us to try to go to trial representing ourselves. But we were able to like adjourn that until we were able to get a lawyer. And it's been really hard for um, my sister to find a lawyer and myself because I have a name out there in this activist community. It's easy for me to find a lawyer, but like, that's the thing in the communities is that the ones that are nameless are people that don't know um, are the ones that don't even want to be on the cameras. They're still being targeted just the same way that I am, my sisters and my brother-in-law and other land defenders. And they're not getting the support with the legal help as as everybody else. So we would need everybody to support all the land defenders that are being criminalized the same way. And we're here at Blue River, but we have two tiny houses that are under construction and um, Nisconlith, and we've been like slowly building away with our volunteer builders to get those done. But we're still continuing to move on. At the same time, we are doing our UN work and submitting back into CERD, um, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, who actually responded last year and ordered Trans Mountain and Coastal Gas Link to halt all of their construction and revoke the permits. And 
everything and Canada continues to violate those like knowing that they've received that order by one of the biggest United Nations human rights mechanisms. And so in closing, we just asking everybody to support us. We have a website, tinyhousewarriors.com that we are posting updates and have a donation link to continue to support our on the ground fight as well as the legal defense that we're forced to pay up for too. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I could just add because it's, I mean, it's mentioned in the film in the, I mean, everyone in the film is a member of the Protect Country Alliance in the Northern Territory. And I mentioned also the other gas campaigners that I was speaking to at the time, including the people that are organising on that edge of Europe at the moment to resist imports of fracked gas from the settler colonies. That group is called gastivists.org. But a lot of the activists in the film that I was working with are from the Protect Country Alliance. And at the moment, in this country, there's an Indigenous youth climate movement called SEED, and they're actually right now organising to become sovereign from the Australian youth climate group that they came out of. And they're asking for donations at the moment to help them become autonomous organisationally from the settler youth climate movement. So that's something to kind of mention in the context of this kind of public talk. Yeah, I'm really interested to keep following your work and, and you know, threading it back to the people I'm in conversation with. They're really across your amazing activism and we're just too exhausted to join today. So, yeah, that's, you know, the weird work that the film does is like platforms people because they literally are too busy organising to be touring around the country speaking, you know. So, yeah, it's a total privilege to be in conversation with you all today. Tanya, any final questions, comments for speakers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just really thankful to get a chance to share with all of you to look at the connections between the work to understand what's sort of happening out there and just to extend, you know, solidarity to those in Australia, to our Indigenous cousins, brothers and sisters and families over there who are also struggling against colonial state violence and projects and yeah and to think of also what's happening here in my own territory and everybody who's working you know who can't underscore enough how much like criminalization has happened to a lot of folks who are doing tiny house warriors work and the ways in which it has deeply divided communities to have some people signing on to support TMX within our Sokhumwakh nation and others not and the deep racism and the small settler colonial towns like Blue River that Kanahus and Tiny House Warriors face. And that stuff is really real and really a risk for people's safety. And so I'm thankful, you know, I'm thankful for Tiny House Warriors and the work that they're doing, the really difficult work on the front line. You know, no Kanahus has faced violent acts by the police. And these things are happening today within Canada. Whether they sign the, you know, the UNDRIP or not, these things continue to happen. And so this disconnect between the legal and policy and public facing international, you know, face of Canada, the smiling face of Trudeau and the oily pipeline executive, you know, that's the two-faced history of this country. And, And I think in any colonial country, we see these same kinds of things happening in places like Australia and New Zealand. And we have to be able to peel that facade away and to see that people have been working for generations to really defend 
the environment that we all live in. So it's one thing we say we defend our territories and protect our territories and water, but folks on the front line are also defending, you know, the environment, the ecology for all of us. So I just want to be thankful and have gratitude for that where I'm not doing that work and others are. So we thank you. Thank you. I'll thank everybody if it seems to be a, a natural place to end. And again, thanks so much for joining at really awkward times for everybody just so that we could line up the time zones and and our internet access. And so thanks for traveling uh, to your studio, Tanya, to do that. And and it, this has been amazing, just, you know, Rachel having guests imaginary and being able to watch over and over the conversations that you've been having with activists throughout in your film and, you know, having conversations in the gallery and, and with staff and just kind of being able to think about these these overlaps of, well, of violence, but also of activism and creativity and, and the work that people are doing. And so thanks for that. And then also, I can't wait to go out to Bush Gallery again. <laughs> See how my, how this, what was it, squashes that I planted last time? <laughs> See how those are doing. Yeah. <laughs> Not their cycle, but you can yeah. plant. <laughs> yeah, those have long ago been eaten, but yeah. yeah, and, and, yeah I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing your work. Can I just say, you know, I just wanted to mention Jack Green in the film is an amazing painter. Gadrian Hoosom has an amazing band called The Sandridge Band. Ray Dixon managed to put out a, his first solo album in the middle of his most you know, intense activist year ever, and it's called Standing Strong. There's a big song in there about order. And then, you know, Q's painting and the aunties in Yalam are trying to get traditional weaving practices happening on their country after a long period of not doing those things. So, yeah, just to, like, keep the artists' names as artists at the same time as their activism is important as well. Absolutely. And on that thread, we should mention the muralist for a lot of Tiny House Warriors work is Aisha Jules. So another Sopatmak artist, we should give him some props here as well. And thank you, uh, Hannah too, for all the work that you're doing and many generations of commitment to it through family and, you know, like generous planetary concern for for our environment, often invisible work. And as you mentioned, criminalized work. And it's so amazing that you're just focused and yeah, thank you so much. And for taking the time out of that work to join us again today to meet me online. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been the second installment of the Gas Imaginary Conversations, released on Below the Radar in partnership with The Or Gallery. Thanks for listening to Rachel O'Reilly in conversation with Tanya Willard and Kanahus Manuel. You can find out more about the Gas Imaginary, Tiny House Warriors, and Seed in the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and if you haven't already, make sure to check out the first discussion of this series on our page. <laughs>